you have your Bible this morning, if you'll open your Bible, the book of Ezra chapter 8, the book of Ezra uh, chapter 8. We've been on a journey over the last, now I think this is week 6 of a series called Life After Exile. And we're looking at this word uh, called restore and the biblical emphasis on this word and the implications on the Christian life. And how God has wants and God wants to and has and, and wants to continue restoring our lives spiritually and all areas of relationships as well. And so this is our theme for the year, restore. What does that look like? And hopefully you're unpacking that and you're starting to get a, a glimpse of that already. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to do a lot of backstory today. I'm going to get right in the text in just a moment because I realize that my time is a little bit smaller today. And I have preached a little bit long, nobody grumble, uh, the last few weeks. And so I'll try to keep it shorter. Er, okay, so uh, let me say that real quick. Uh, last week, we picked up in Ezra chapter 7. We were finally introduced to Ezra, who's the namesake of the book, the prophet Ezra. Uh, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah likely were written together. Uh, not exactly sure if it was Ezra that wrote both of them, or, or Ezra wrote part of them, and maybe Nehemiah wrote some of it, and maybe Zerubbabel contributed. But we find three different leaders in these books, all of which were the same time period uh, around uh, 539 B.C. is when it began. And this is when a major historical event happened, 586 Judah was taken off in captivity by Babylon. In 539 B.C., uh, there was an, an issue, a, a decree by Cyrus the Great that those who were in captivity could go back to their, their native lands. And so in three different ways, we see uh, at least three different ways, we see Israelites moving back from Babylon to Judah, first with Zerubbabel, and they go to rebuild the temple. And it took a little while, but true to the prophecy of Jeremiah, discovered by Daniel, seven years later, after 586 and 516, the temple was was rebuilt, restored. And then we see Ezra. And Ezra's job is really to refocus the people, not on the building project, but on the spiritual restoration that was necessary in Judah, right? Because you can build all day long. You can have the prettiest buildings. You can have all the programs in the church. You can have all those things. But if the spiritual nature of the church is broken, the rest of it's all worthless. Amen? And so Ezra realizes, you know what, there's bigger needs now. We need to return people back to the Word of God. So last week we, we finally got to Ezra, the, the namesake, and Ezra begins to, 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 to gear up to go back to Jerusalem. And we're introduced to his character, that he was skilled in the Word of God. He was a man who loved God's Word and wanted to share God's Word with everybody around and realized that God's law was all that mattered. Amen. Not what we think about things, not what our culture says about things, but God's law is the foundation for any kind of reform, social, moral, political. If it's not rooted in God's law, it is absolutely going to fail. Amen? So Ezra takes God's word and begins to rally the troops to now go. That's where we find ourselves in Ezra chapter 8. I'm, I'm calling this sermon, the title is called Relate, because uh, many of us can relate to where Ezra finds the situation this morning. In Ezra chapter 1, I'm going to read just a few verses today. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. Amen? You're welcome for that, all right? But in Ezra chapter 1, Ezra is starting to uh, recruit, so to speak. He's beginning to draft his team to go back. And so we get very first verse, uh, verse, verse, we'll start there. These are the heads of their father's houses. And this is the genealogy of those who went up with me. We're not going to read all of these names, but I want you to see the first few. With me from Babylonia, in the reign of Artaxerxes the king, of the sons of, man, I hate these biblical names, but we're going to say Pinhas or Finhas. We'll just say that, okay? Uh, Gershom, of the sons of Ithamar, Daniel. Now, you probably do not know the biblical line here, but this is a line of the priestly line of Aaron. This is really important. 
So the first two people he recruits and labels as going back are priests to go back and take God's word back to Judah. But not just priests. Continue reading. Of the sons of David, is this the David of the Old Testament, of the David that we know, the hero David? Yes. Of the sons of David, Hatu. So it seems as if Ezra is listing by the genealogy of those who return two important people that's predicated on uh, the priest and the Messianic line of David. Okay? Now we're going to skip through the genealogy, but I want you to see that up front before we get to verse 15. So he begins to gather, verse 15, I gathered these people. These people were going back. Again, they're in Babylon, about to make the long trip across, okay? Probably was more like a, when you're flying overseas, you know, you have to go north and then go down, right? If you're going to Europe, y'all know that, right? You can't just fly right across because something about the tilt of the world, the way the rotation of the world. Okay. So they don't they'll go straight across the desert either, even though they're not flying. They actually go up, most likely up into the Fertile Crescent area and then back down into Judah, okay? So he's gathering this, these people for that trip. He said, I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there was camp three days. And this is important. So he's gotten to, he sent out this message throughout all of Babylon, recruiting people to go back with him. And there's some expectations of who should go, okay? And he begins to do an inventory. You ever had to do inventory at work before? It ain't fun, right? Especially if you get one off, right? Y'all with me? Say, uh-huh. That's a bad day. It's a bad day if you want off, right? And you can't find a one. He's doing inventory. He said, I reviewed the people and the priest, and he realized they were one off. He said, there, there was none of the sons of Levi. Now, in a casual reading of Ezra chapter 8, verse 15, you think, well, what's the big deal? It's just like one tribe, right? But it wasn't just one tribe. The sons of Levites, the Levites were a very significant tribe. So we're going to do a little little Bible study. Is that okay with you guys for a second? Just a pause. You may want to write some, some verses down. Numbers chapter 3, verse 12 and 13, we get a little understanding of who the Levites were. Numbers 3, 12 and 13. Behold, I have taken from the Levites from among the people of Israel, God says, instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the people of Israel, the Levites, God says, they shall be special. Now, some of our teenagers are, are special. You know, y'all with me? They're special. We're not talking about that kind of special. We're talking about chosen, set apart for a specific call. They're special among the people of Israel. The Levites shall be mine, for all the firstborn are, are mine. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated for my own all the firstborn in Israel, both man and the beast, and they shall be mine. I am the Lord. And so what seems to be Numbers chapter 3 is the tribe of Levi, although they have no land heritage, they have a position in the worship structure of Israel. Okay? Very important. Okay, we'll get there in just a second. But they have a very, listen carefully, high calling on their life. Ezra chapter 7, the previous chapter, as, uh, as Ezra's communicating to the king, he's like, I want to go back. And the king's like, much like earlier in, in the book, much like in Nehemiah chapter 1, when the burden's there, the king somehow, God is working sovereignly in the king to send them back. And so in this moment, verse 13 of Ezra chapter 7, the king says, I make a decree that any one of the people of Israel or the priests or their Levites mentioned by name, Levites, in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem, they may go with you. So there's an expectation that the Levites would go. But upon this invitation and this inventory, no Levites show up. None. And there's maybe some explanations of that. So did they not get the word? Maybe the communication was broke down. You ever played that game before we have chairs sit out and, and there's a message passed on to the next person by whispering and then the ear of the next person that goes all the way around. Y'all ever play that game? Check your head if you have, right? Maybe they didn't get the right message. 
Maybe I told them, hey, I want you guys to gather at the river. We're going back to Jerusalem. And maybe they thought, hey, we're having a party on Friday at Fred's house, okay? Maybe the word got, got mixed up. Maybe, maybe they don't know who they are. We're talking about generations of past. Maybe, they don't, maybe the Levites don't even know they're Levites. You see, the Levites, they're called specifically to minister at the temple. The Levites were the spiritual leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. The Levites. And so Ezra, who's going to go back from, listen carefully, y'all, this is really important, go back from Babylon, going back to Judah, and wants to reinstitute the Mosaic law to lead spiritually the people back to God's word, back to God's covenant, and, and yet there's no spiritual leaders show up? You see the problem? You see the problem? Like, where are Levites? You know, sometimes we, we find ourselves in the same position. Number one, if, in your worship guide, if you have a worship guide this morning, if you're at home with us, take out a Bible, take out a, a, a pen and pad, and write these down. There's seven of them, and I'll be quick this morning. Number one, we cannot neglect spiritual leadership in days of restoration. We live in days of restoration. Days where we need to see things rebuilt and restored, repaired, families, good Lord, families. Culture needs to be repaired. Churches need to be restored to the real gospel again and preach and live and, and exist out of the, fu- the fruit of God's word again. There's a lot that needs to be done in the area of restoration. But in this moment, in these days, we cannot neglect spiritual leadership. And I'm looking at you and looking at me. God has called us to lead spiritually. You cannot escape that call, Christian. Jim George says, you cannot escape God's call in your life. He will pursue you to the ends of the earth. And I want to ask the question, have you ever heard of Jonah? And you want to be swallowed up by a big fish? 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Listen carefully. You, Christian, are a holy nation. The church, the people for his own possession. Listen, that you here's the spiritual leadership, may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were a nobody, you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once again, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You weren't, were not an anybody, but now you are a spiritual leader. So Peter says, verse 11, beloved, I urge you, than as sojourners, and here's exiles, we can relate to our story, exiles to abstain from the passion of the flesh which wage war against your soul, and you keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What basically Peter is saying is live differently because you're a spiritual leader. You are the light of this world. A city that sits on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket or a bush. But instead, the lie of the world is set in a prominent place to show people the lie of the world. Amen? We cannot abdicate our spiritual leadership roles in these days, church. We must not. Number two, I said this so many times, I get tired of saying this statement. But I'm going to say it again. Number two, God did not just save us from something, but to something. It's really important. Really important. God did not just save us from something, namely, sin, death, and hell, but to something. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says that we 
are his workmanship. The word there literally means masterpiece. Now some of y'all are like, I ain't no masterpiece. Well, God sees you differently, okay? He sees what you can be, maybe not the mess you're in right now, amen, right? You are his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works. So your relationship, if you look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 9, talk about how salvation is completely by grace through faith. Salvation is accomplished by God alone, amen? You were saved not because anything you did. You're saved by everything what Christ did for you. But that salvation puts you in a position to then serve him with your life. And God has plans for your life to serve him, to be a spiritual leader. You cannot abdicate that. You can't stay home when the people are looking for the Levites. Church, I'm going to preach. We created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. that We should walk in them. God called us to walk in. So the inventory at the side of, of, the, of the river, hey, where are the, where are the, where are the Levites at? And thankfully, Ezra had some gumption, and he called it out. And so he said, no, this is not going to do. We can't go back to Judah without spiritual leaders. We can't go back and institute the law, the law of Moses, and teach God's word without spiritual leadership. So he's going to call them out. So here it is, verse, verse number 16. Then I sent for Eleazar, Ariel. Not uh, not that one, okay? I'm sorry. Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jerob, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, leading men, and for Jorib and Elnathan, who are men of insight. And I sent them, I sent those guys to Ido. Now, where is Ido? Ido's far to the east now. Go over to Ido and you find me some Levites. And leading men at the place of Casiphius. And Cassiphia, excuse me, telling them what to say to Ido and his brothers and the temple servants at the place, Cassiphia, namely, listen carefully, to send us ministers for the house of our God. I called him on it. I sent an entourage over to get me some Levites, some ministers. Because we've got to have some spiritual leaders. Church, today, we've got to have some spiritual leaders. Now, I'm not picking on, on you, but... There are times we all could do better in spiritual leadership, my included, me included. But there's got to be a moment we look into ourselves and say, what did God call me for? And am I really going to do what God called me to do? And you're going to lead out. Hey, you go get me some Levites. Number three, your worship guy. This is so important. Ezra could have could have passively just went on to Judah without Levites, but he didn't. Number three, the gospel confronts sin. Wow. Our personal sin and our corporate sin. You know why people don't like the gospel? Because to hear the good news, to understand the good news, you have to acknowledge the bad news. You with me? The bad news is that you need the good news. The bad news is, is that you and I are broken because of sin. We are completely uh, infected because of the sin that's in our life, and the sin has been passed down for ever since Genesis chapter 3, and you and I are hopeless in that situation. We can't work our way to God. We can't say enough I'm sorry's. We can't do enough good things to ever inherit eternal life, and so we are just broken because of sin. That's the bad news. 
the good news is that Jesus didn't leave us there. God didn't leave us there. And so the good news is that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life. The only one who ever accomplished that. Who died on the, on the cross to pay a sin debt, not his but mine, right? And to raise from the grave so that one day, by repentance, then I can have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, by faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? But to understand the good news, you got to acknowledge the bad news. So the gospel confronts our sin. Sin is anything that disobeys God, any missing of the mark. And there's, there's personal sin that we all have it, right? And that's what I have found as a Christian. Like when, when the Holy Spirit convicts me of my sin, it's like layers of an onion. It's, it's painful as he's ripping it off. And just when I think I'm starting to get someplace, God exposes another layer of the onion of sin in my life, and he continues to peel away. And, and we're never fully there. Y'all with me? We're never fully there, right? Not until glory. But then there's, there's, there's personal sin. But then there's, there's corporate sin. And we, and we kind of struggle with that because we have this, this, this idea, and please mis, don't misunderstand me. We have this idea that in, in our culture that privacy is more important than accountability. The privacy is more, don't get involved in my business, my junk, right? Because we initially, we just put up walls there. Like, I don't want anybody speaking into my life because it's my life. The problem is it's not your life. Amen, Christian? It's his life. And there is a responsibility that we have to let, first, let people speak truth into our life. If you're not willing to take correction or instruction or encouragement, then there's something wrong. Amen? If I'm not willing to take instruction and encouragement, and, and even correction, something's wrong here, amen? Check your heart. But in our culture today, and, and it's our Western thing in many cases, like we just think privacy is more important, so we don't say anything because we don't want to get labeled as judgmental, amen? I don't want nobody to judge me. I don't want some, people call me judgmental. That's just not a good thing. And so we don't, we, we don't even judge with the right judgment, as the Scriptures say. We just are quiet. Ezra could have been just quiet but he said, no, we got to fix this thing, and we got to fix it now. One, one commentary said this. He said, it's not loving to let the Levites linger in lethargy. You know, he's a preacher. <laughs> it's not loving to let the Levites linger in lethargy. It's not loving to let Christians wallow in sin. In fact, that is the most unloving thing we can do. For ourselves to wallow in sin. Or to let our brother and sister wallow in sin. Now, there are certainly parameters for that. Listen carefully. For us to call out and confront sin in, in, in our life, but also in the life of our brother and sister, means first of all, we have to do a self-examination of our own life, right? Jesus says, take out the two-by-four before you ever get the speck out, amen? So you better amputate the two-by-four before you ever start looking at somebody else's brother's life, amen? And you better do it with love. With the purpose, and here's this word of the year, with the purpose of restoring your brother and sister to Christ. For to judge somebody just out of the sake of judgment is not love. But to hold somebody accountable because you care deeply and want to restore them, that's love. Amen. Galatians chapter 6 says these words. We'll look more about this verse later on this year. Paul says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, i.e. sin... You who are spiritual. Now, that, that should, whew, that's a hard one to qualify. Like, how can you label yourself spiritual? That's a, that's a, are you right with God? That's the question. Are you right with God? You should restore him in a spirit of what? Gentleness. Restore him in a spirit of gentleness, but keep watch on yourself, lest you to be tempted. 
bear one another's burdens, the burdens of, of loss and pain and heartache, but also the burdens of sin, church. Look at the context. Bear each other's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Well, what is the law of Christ? I'm glad you ask. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus basically simplified 613 Old Testament laws to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then he simplified it even further. He said, I'll tell you what, love people the way I have loved you. That is the law of Christ. So if you love people the way Jesus loved you and me, then didn't Jesus speak truth in life? Didn't he confront some sin? Did Jesus let the Pharisees get away with it? No. Man, I would not want to be a Pharisee in Jesus' day. I wouldn't want to be on the church staff in Jesus' day. Amen? It's a hard one, isn't it? But it's necessary. Verse 18. Continue on. By the good hand of our God on us. So God God begins to move and begins to shake the hands and the hearts of the Levites now after the messengers have got there. And again, we don't know if they got the message right or they didn't know who they were, but somehow God began to stir people. And this is out of act of his mercy and grace. Aren't you glad that God gives you second chances? Amen. Levites first said if somebody heard a message, if they heard it, like, maybe I don't want to go. I don't want to go. I'll stay right here in the comfort of Babylon. And, and here comes the message again because God persists and God begins to call. Number four, God's call on our life, it's not because of us, but often in spite of us. Amen? I'm going to tell you, this is the story of my life. You, you may not know this about me. Well, you probably know this about me seven years later. I'm not the most uh, skilled preacher or teacher. I am not the most articulate because I have Joey-isms all the time. Amen? Amen. Thank you for that. But I go back to a, an evening on a basketball court in Guatemala, Central America, when I heard the voice of God whisper in my heart, this is what I want you to do for the rest of your life. And although I felt completely inadequate as a 12-year-old boy and every single day since, God has equipped me one day at a time. I'm thankful that he persisted. There were times when I was in high school and I didn't want to be a preacher because there's nothing cool about being a preacher. My dad was a preacher, didn't want to be a preacher, amen? But God persisted. And he called me and he has used anything he's done and good in me is not because of me, it's in spite of me, church. This is his prerogative of grace. Second Peter chapter 3, Peter says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but he's patient toward you. I'm thankful. He's patient toward us. Amen? He's patient toward us. Not wishing that he should perish. It's that initial call of salvation, but that all should reach repentance. I think about what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul talks about how much of a sinner he is. He says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Like, Paul would say, I am the worst of sinners. I'm it. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. You know what Paul is saying? I'm so thankful that God persisted on this call in my life. I'm so thankful that God did not give up on me. Amen. And I would bet if I could just tally a survey up here, every single person in this room could probably say the same thing. Amen? I'm thankful that God has not given up on us. Verse 18, about the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion, 
of the sons of Malai, the sons of Levi. There we are, some Levites, son of Israel, namely Sherebiah with his sons and kinsmen. There's 18 of them. And then Hashabiah with him, Jeshiah of the sons of Merai with his kinsmen and their sons. There's 20 of them, right? And besides the 220 of the temple servants whom David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites, these were all mentioned by name. So guess what God did? God provided spiritual leadership. Praise God. Number five, gospel people are ready to go in obedience at a moment's notice. Now think about these Levites. Maybe they heard the message the first time. Maybe they didn't. But they now got, they got confronted by Ezra's entourage. Hey, you going to go do your thing? You going you're gonna to be obedient or not? And it seems like they packed up in a hurt moment's hurt moment, and they went. The initial group at the, at the, at the river, ready to go at a moment's Notice, let me ask this, are you ready to spiritually lead? Are you ready to go and be obedient to God in your family, in your school, in your workplace? In our culture, let's just be honest, it's pretty messed up right now. Are you ready to lead? Will you lead? Isaiah says, hear the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah said, put me in, coach. Here I am. Send me. No, no distraction, no, eh, I'll think about it. Uh, Babs, I'm picking on those Babs because I'm Babs, I bleed fried chicken. Now let's have a committee meeting about it. Now let's just, let's just go. Let's do what God called us to do. Verse 21 so the, the entourage arrives. We're almost in just three more verses, okay? Because we're not reading the rest of the, the chapter. Then I proclaimed a fast there. That word scares us, by the way. A fast. Uh, at the river of Hava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all of our goods. Let's talk about the word fast for just a moment. We don't do this very often in the Baptist church, but we ought to. Fasting is a spiritual discipline of humbling ourselves and seeking God. It's denying yourself for a short period of time in order to focus your heart and your soul and your perspective on Christ. Now, I like food as much as anybody. Uh, I'm a Baptist preacher in training, amen? But sometimes we need to take a step back. It's biblical, actually. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus affirms it. And I'm just kind of in the practice of whatever Jesus explicitly says or affirms, that's what I want to do. Amen? So Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, and when you fast. When you fast. Like, not if, but, but when. Like, just when you pray earlier. When you pray, and now when you fast. Don't look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they just figure their faces and their fasting may be seen by others like it's all about them. Truly, I say to you that they have received their reward. But here it is again. When you fast. Anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees it with the secret will, will reward you. So fasting is a private spiritual discipline where you, for a short period of time, deprive yourself of something that you really, really love. It may be food. For some of you, that may not be health-wise possible. But it may be, it may be your device. It may be social media. It may be something that you love so much, but sometimes can be a distraction away from God. And so you need to put it away for a period of time and just humbly seek God. Amen? Fasting should be practiced, even in Baptist settings. 
Psalm 69, write it down, verse 10 through 13, references, when I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, David writes, that he was reproached for it, but God blessed him in it. So the idea is in our, our moments of, of fasting, we, do not, we don't do the religious activity for the sake of doing the religious activity. We do it, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, for the verse 31, we do it all for the glory of God. Amen? Fasting is a good thing. John Piper said, Christian fasting at the root is the hunger of a homesickness for God. You ever needed God so much? Like, I just, I need to put everything aside, just focus on God. You ever been there? Like, I'm homesick. I, I need to be fed by the bread of life. I need to be satisfied by the only one that can satisfy my need, Christ. One commentary said this, we fast because we have tasted and seen the goodness of God and we are desperately hungry for more of him. Fasting is a good thing. Verse 22 of Ezra chapter 8, almost there, land the plane. We're on the final approach, okay? Y'all good? Everybody all good? All right. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers because he was convinced I didn't need it because God was with him. And horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath against all who forsake him. So we fasted, and we asked God to take care of us. And we implored our God for this. And guess what God did? He listened to our entreaty, i.e., he heard our prayer. He took care of Ezra and the Levites and the descendants of Aaron and the descendants of David and all those who gathered to go back to take the word of God back to Judah to rebuild the spiritual culture of the day. Number six, even in walking in step with God's will, even in walking in step with God's will, we must pause and humbly pray, fast, and seek his protection. You know, sometimes when God calls to do something, listen carefully, we kind of get arrogant about it. Well, I'm a special. Y'all are like, yeah, the preacher is special. He's real special, right? But sometimes we can all get that. Like there's that holy pride that bells up in us sometimes. Like God called me to do something special. Look at me. I'm going to go do it, and nothing can stop me. I beg to differ. Because if you do God's will with the wrong attitude, you're not going to accomplish God's will. Amen? If you try to be obedient with the wrong motive, God's not going to honor that. It's not about ourselves. When God calls us to spiritual tasks, it ain't about you. It's always about him. And the moment that you or the church or we, we make it about us, it will fail. And great will be the fall of it, I'm afraid. Ephesians 4, Paul says, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you've been called so number seven, it's arrogance to persist with the will of God without acting in the spirit of God. Amen? It's arrogance. Arrogance. It's about me, it's about me, it's about me, it's about me. No, it's not. It is and it has always been about God. Amen? Now, why is this text so, so important? Because this text makes us painfully aware that God has called us to spiritual task. 
and that we may be sitting down on the job. Amen? Dads, let's just call it what it is. Dads, you are to be the spiritual leader of your home. You're, you're to love your wife as Christ loved the church. You're to train up your children in the word of God. That is a spiritual leadership role. Have you neglected that role? Christian, the Great Commission is not just for missionaries. God has called you to take the gospel to all nations, which means the, the kid next to you in the locker, he's part of all nations. Your coworker, part of all nations. See, we don't get to just pick and choose what call we want because there are calls in God's word that are clear for all of us. And they are a charge to step up spiritually because we need spiritual leaders today. Amen, church? We need spiritual leaders today. I'm going to leave you with one verse. Well, three verses, but one text, okay? Matthew chapter 9, verse 36 and following. And when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and they were helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And then listen, he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the problem is the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Church, this should be our prayer today. I got a burden, and I'm going to share my burden with it. I'm going to be quiet. Amen? Oh, I'll keep preaching. That's fine. I mean, why is it that we're not seeing people commit themselves to full-time ministry anymore? Where are the next generation of preachers? Where's the next generation of missionaries? Where's the next generation of kids' ministry leaders? Where are they at? Is it possible that God's calling them? God's calling you. But you'd rather stay home in Babylon than go serve. Well, preacher, I'm not supposed to be a full-time you know, minister or whatever. Uh, on paid staff, maybe. But you are still called to be spiritual leaders. And we must pray for that. Amen. Let's pray together. God, Lord, the call upon our life because of the gospel. It calls us from sin and death and hell. It puts us crosshair into your will. Lord, what do you want from us, Lord? You didn't just take us to heaven, Lord, when we received you as our Savior. And Lord, when we repented of our sin, when we became a Christian, Lord, you left us here for a great purpose. Lord, help us to own the purpose. Lord, help us when we hear your call, whether in the word we're reading in the scriptures or through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, that we say, yes, Lord, here I am, send me, I'll go. Father, if you're, if you're raising up inside of our church those who will be ministers, Lord, in their heart, convict them of that need, and then give them a hungry desire to be obedient. Lord, if you're raising up people in our church, and I know you are calling them, or to serve in multiple capacities in our church, or to help them to say yes to spiritual leadership, because we need the Levites. Lord, we need spiritual leaders today. Lord, today, if there's anyone here who's never answered the first call, the Holy Spirit of God prompting their heart to repent of their sin turn to Jesus for their hope and their salvation. Today, Lord, lead someone to their salvation. 
Lord, today lead us to recommit our lives to you, to your purposes. Build your kingdom today. Build your church today. Lead someone to be obedient to you today during our time of commitment this morning. God, thank you for your word. Father, I pray that it fed us this morning. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me?